This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We'll start off reading from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first story, Texas official to teachers, state law requires teaching opposing views on the Holocaust by Felissa Kramer. Teachers in Texas, a Texas school district, were told last week that a new state law requiring them to present multiple perspectives about widely debated and currently controversial issues meant they needed to make opposing views on the Holocaust available to students. NBC News obtained an audio recording of the official, the Carroll Independent School District's Executive Director of Curriculum and Instruction, speaking to the teachers about how to work under the constraints of the new law, known as House Bill 3979. The law was passed amid a wave of efforts in Republican-led state houses to prevent critical race theory, divisive topics, and concepts related to race and bias from being taught to children. You just try to remember the concepts of 3979, Petty said in the recording. Make sure that if you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has an opposing, that has other perspectives. Gasps and sounds of nervous laughter can be heard on the recording as one teacher asks aloud, how do you oppose the Holocaust? Petty responds, believe me, that's come up. A Texas lawmaker who drafted a new version of the bill told NBC News that matters of good and evil are not subject to the education legislation. But the possibility that the wave of conservative education legislation could get in the way of Holocaust education crossed the minds of education observers in at least some places over the last year. Under this law, it would be impossible to teach that Nazi Germany was inherently anti-Semitic or that the Third Reich oppressed Jews simply because they were Jews because that would identify Nazis as inherently biased and Jews as inherently and systemically oppressed. Russell Nice, a Jewish educator in St. Louis, wrote in the St. Louis Jewish Light in May about legislation that had been proposed in Missouri. Lawmakers there are continuing to push for anti-critical race theory rules for schools. The episode comes a year after a Florida school district fired a principal twice who told a parent that he could not say the Holocaust was an actual factual event because not all parents shared the same belief. Florida's school board has since enacted a ban on Holocaust denial in schools as part of a ban on teaching critical race theory. In Texas, the recording suggests that Petty does not necessarily support the new law, but does anticipate conflicts over its enforcement. Four days before the training, the Carroll School Board had overturned a district ruling and formally, uh, formally reprimanded a teacher who drew a parent complaint for keeping an anti-racism book in her classroom. At one point in the recording, a teacher says she is terrified. At another point, an educator asks whether Number the Stars, a, the classic Holocaust novel, would require another book to balance out. Petty does not address that question on the recording. You are professionals. We hired you as professionals. We trust you with your children, Petty tells the teachers, prior to offering the Holocaust book example. So if you think the book is okay, then let's go with it. 
and whatever happens, we will fight it together. Next from JTA, with dozens of world leaders watching, Sweden looks to turn around its reputation on anti-Semitism by Katarzyna Andrews. Malmo, Sweden. Malmo, Sweden's third largest city, has in recent years become known as a hotbed of anti-Semitism. With around one-third of its inhabitants born outside of Sweden, many of them often living in ethnically homogenous neighborhoods, the city has also become a synonym for Sweden's integration problems. But this week, Malmo, and by extension Sweden's government, aimed to turn that reputation on its head with a conference about combating anti-Semitism attended in person or on video by nearly 50 heads of state, foreign government ministers, European Union officials, and World Jewish Congress representatives. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Israeli President Isaac Herzog, and French President Emmanuel Macron sent in video messages. YouTube, led by the Jewish CEO Susan Wojcicki, pledged over $5 million to nonprofits and government entities to fight online anti-Semitism. Facebook's chief operating officer, Sheryl Sandberg, meanwhile, who has spoken publicly about how her Jewish ancestors escaped persecution in Europe to the United States, joined live by video and said her company is devoted to meticulous reviewing of its users' content despite its past issues with moderation on the topic. Unlike in other similar conferences on the subject, the Malmo International Forum on Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Antisemitism did not end with a joint declaration signed by all of its attendees. Swedish Prime Minister Stefan Lufven said he preferred the leaders to present uh, the leaders present to focus on discussing concrete measures that can be used to curb anti-Semitic incidents and behavior. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who joined virtually from Brussels, introduced the newly adopted EU strategy on combating anti-Semitism and fostering Jewish life, 2021 to 2030 plan, and proposed the creation of a young European ambassadors for Holocaust Remembrance Program. We're not looking for another declaration. We are looking to translate these principles of these documents into reality, Lofven, who is leaving his office next month, said in a speech Wednesday. If and how the conference serves as a turning point for the countries on the ground, anti-Semitism problem remains to be seen. While the heads of state held the spotlight, Swedish media reports in recent, we recent weeks have told stories of the local Jews who are continuing to leave Malmo, some after suffering anti-Semitism anti directly in their daily lives. You can hold your nice speeches, we're moving while you're doing it, the mother of a 12-year-old Jewish girl told Sweden's newspaper Dagens Neiter. Her daughter described how she had found graffiti reading Free Palestine and F Israel by her school locker and how someone spit on her jacket. It has proven too much for the girl's mother who is relocating their family to Israel next summer despite not speaking any Hebrew. That story is not unique. All of the Jewish-Swedish students interviewed in a survey published by the city of Malmo earlier this year said they had been, had been exposed to some form of anti-Semitism at school. The problem extends far beyond the classroom. In 2017, the Malmo synagogue's windows were shattered with stones. In 2020, the city had to suspend its, partisan, uh, its partnership 
with the Arab Book Fair as an anti-Semitic book appeared on its website. The title has subsequently been removed. But it was perhaps an experiment conducted in 2015 by a Swedish journalist that drew the most attention to the situation. The reporter, wearing a kippah and a star of David pendant, was verbally and physically attacked while walking through various Malmö neighborhoods. In Malmö and beyond, Swedish Jews have felt caught between different streams of anti-Semitism from both radicalized Muslim immigrants and neo-Nazi movements. Yes, you are taking a risk when you walk around with the Star of David, Frederick Siradsky, the spokesman for the Jewish community of Malmö organization, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency in an interview before the conference. In 2019, in the wake of a report on the city's declining Jewish population, he told JTA that his Jewish community could disappear entirely by 2029. But Saradsky struck a more optimistic tone in talking about this week's conference. The community, he said, is forging closer ties to Katrin sternfeld Jamem, Almo's mayor since 2013, who detailed plans to create better conditions for Jews in the city in an interview with Haaretz before the conference. We've been working with the Jewish community in several, several ways to map the problem, to create an understanding of the problem, and today we have a long-term commitment. We're investing more than 2 million euros, $2.3 million, over four years, she said. We're also working within our school system, mapping the problem there too, and creating different ways to prevent prejudice. Saradsky confirmed that within the last 20, day, uh, 20 years, the number of Jews in the city has been halved to approximately 500 members today. But he was careful in drawing cause and effect conclusions and emphasized that the fear and experience of anti-Semitism is not the only factor driving the numbers down. Younger generations have better career opportunities in Stockholm and also more ways of engaging in religious life. Older people move to the cities where their children and grandchildren live. Many older members of the Malmo community, among them Holocaust survivors, die out over time. Even those who decide to leave for Israel point to multiple reasons for their moves, he said. And Saradsky has noticed that in the past two years the curve has flattened and the number of community organization members has remained practically unchanged. He takes that as a good sign. During an event held before the conference celebrating Jewish life in Sweden, Ronald Lauder, head of the World Jewish Congress and a prominent Republican donor, spoke of another factor that has been a flashpoint in the country for decades, the harsh criticism of Israel common in Swedish society and government. Speaking in Malmö's main synagogue, he expressed disappointment with the United Nations, where Sweden had until recently regularly signed on to resolutions singling out Israel for international rebuke. Before this uh, September, before this September, Israel and Sweden's foreign ministers had not spoken to each other for seven years, a historic low in relations. The previous mayor of Malmo, Ilmar Ripalu, was also known for his sharp anti-Israel stance and for blaming attacks on Jews on their support of the Jewish state. What if Sweden was under attack today, he said with the audience, to the audience, which included Lofen, defending Israel's actions in armed conflict with the Palestinians and others in its region. Over a decade ago, Lauder wrote an op-ed in which he heavily criticized Swedish politicians and media for inspiring anti-Semitic attitudes with what he deemed their over-the-line Israel rhetoric. But his tone Tuesday was dramatically different. 
Ten years ago, Sweden was not friendly at all, not only to Israel, but to the Jewish people, Lauder told JTA. We worked day and night. We watched and we listened to what the prime minister and his government were doing. It was like a miracle. I will use Prime Minister Lofin as an example when I speak to people. I hope other countries will follow. Lofvin, who has led Sweden since 2014, has been clear that he wants to leave behind a legacy of defending Jews. He first visited the Auschwitz Museum in 2017, and on International Holocaust Remembrance Day in 2019, he declared that Sweden would create a state museum devoted to uh, memorializing the Holocaust. In 2020, an allocation of over $1 million toward the goal was announced, and last month, the government declared further support of approximately $3.5 million to be given to the National Historical Museum's agency responsible for the task. It has now been confirmed that the new museum will be located in Stockholm, even though opinions on that choice were split both among Swedish Jews and scholars. Stockholm, the city of Sweden's most famous righteous among the nations, diplomat Raoul Wallenberg, and Malmo were the two most frequently mentioned locations. Malmo, which lies in the southernmost part of Sweden, just 25 miles across Aresund Strait from Copenhagen, became a safe haven for several thousand Danish Jews in 1943 and for 4,000 more in 1945 when it took in evacuees from the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Despite that, some feared that the Holocaust history would have been used to hide Malmo's current problems. Others argued that the contemporary issues made it more important to place a museum about Jews there. Despite the gestures, 97-year-old Holocaust survivor Leah Gleitman, who has lived in Malmo since 1946, succinctly summarized the feelings many Swedish Jews have about the Malmo Conference in an interview with Sweden's national broadcaster, SVT. It is important, but only if it really leads to something. Sometimes it is just talk, but we have hope, maybe. Next from JTA, three years after Tree of Life shooting, Pittsburgh is hosting a major global summit on eradicating hate by David Rulo. As Pittsburgh approaches the three-year anniversary of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, the city will play host to a high-profile new effort to find a global bipartisan response to rising tides of hate. The three-day in-person Eradicate Hate Global Summit, which will be held in the city October 18th to 20th, will feature more than 100 speakers and panelists, including former President George W. Bush in a virtual address, current Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who is Jewish, and Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt. Also taking part are media personalities Fareed Zakaria and Major Garrett, former government, uh, governors of Pennsylvania and Washington State, and Alice Weremu Nderitu, the United Nations Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide. Other speakers will include members of the Pittsburgh Jewish community, including members of Tree of Life, whose building also housed two other congregations. The idea for this summit was conceived shortly after the 2018 mass shooting, the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. When Tree of Life happened, I, like everyone else in the city of Pittsburgh, thought, what do I have to bring to the table to help, said Summit Co-Chair Laura Ellsworth, an attorney at the law firm Jones Day. 
Ellsworth is not Jewish, but as the first partner in charge of the firm's global community service initiatives, she leads the firm's rule of law initiatives in 43 offices on five continents. It includes a hate crime task force that represents victims on a pro bono basis. In the context of that work, I had seen fabulous people working on the field in different disciplines who weren't talking to one another, Ellsworth said. She reached out to a longtime friend and advisor to co-chair the event with her, Mark Nordlenberg, Chancellor Emeritus of the University of Pittsburgh. Nordenberg was already helping the local federation distribute $6 million in funds donated to the local Jewish community following the attack. Ellsworth, who placed third in the Republican primary for the, Republic, uh, the Pennsylvania governor's race in 2018, said she wanted to find a way to create real-world solutions to battle hate, not just anti-Semitism, but hatred toward immigrants, the LGBTQ community, Muslims, and others. Laura called and said, we've got to do something to make certain that Pittsburgh becomes better known for the way it responded to the attack, as opposed to simply being the site of the attack Nordenberg said. Greenblatt's participation at the summit is notable given that he has sharply criticized Fox News, a high-profile client of Ellsworth's law firm, Jones Day, for the network's role spreading what the ADL says are hateful ideologies. The firm also took heavy criticism for representing some legal challenges to the 2020 presidential election on behalf of groups supporting President Trump. Challenges which observers have said helped fuel the fire that led to the January 16th attempted insurrection on the U.S. Capitol by pro-Trump extremist groups. Greenblatt did not return a request for comment from the JTA. The ADL has worked with Jones Day's Hate Crimes Task Force on other initiatives, according to the firm's website. Since the attack, Pittsburgh has played host to many discussions and events built around combating hate and anti-Semitism. This summit will be different, its organizers say. For one, the sheer scale of the event is unprecedented. The reaction from people who are devoting huge parts of their lives to this has been the same. No one has done this. No one has brought us together from disparate geographic locations across disciplinary lines with different strategic approaches to counter the spread of hate, Nordenberg said. For another, almost every speaker will be in person. The isolation created by COVID-19 has exacerbated online recruitment into hate, uh, hate groups, Ellsworth said, noting that it is, part, it is part of the reason she was adamant that the summit not be virtual. Ellsworth said it's important that people experience the seminar in person and have the opportunity to engage with these people and share their own ideas. She said there is a live streaming opportunity, but those participating remotely will miss the chance to experience the summit in person and meet the people, which is a huge part of what we're trying to do. Former Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge, who will be speaking at the summit, was instrumental in corralling the lineup's top dignitaries to appear in person and waive their speaker's fees, Ellsworth said. You can throw a dart at just about any map and it will land on a region impacted by hate-driven acts of violence, Ridge said in a statement to the Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle. That's how pervasive this challenge is and why the Eradicate Hate Global Summit is so important. I'm pleased to be a part of the summit's worldwide mission. While we can never truly eradicate hate, I'm confident we can weaken it at its sources and achieve a better, safer future for us all. Nordenberg said the expectation is that in future years, the summit will move to the collaboratory against hate, 
a joint research and action center created by the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University in the wake of the Tree of Life shooting to study and combat extremist hate. This is going to be a challenge, he said. Part of that challenge will be fundraising, but what I think we're doing is sufficiently distinctive that while the initiative is physically located in Pittsburgh, there will be people from more distant places who care deeply about stopping the spread of hate. Another expected speaker is Kathleen Blee, who serves as co-director of the Collaboratory Against Hate. She is also a member of Congregation Dor Hadash, one of the three congregations attacked in the Tree of Life building. Sometimes people talk fatalistically and say things like, people will always hate people. And there will always be crazy people who take out their feelings in violent ways, Blee said. What we're seeing in Pittsburgh and nationally and internationally is something different that we can't chalk up to human nature. We're seeing people deliberately and strategically provoked by a set of actors who are trying to damage society. Blee has been studying hate for years as an academic. Now, as a member of the congregation that was targeted by hate, she said, I know more about being in the victim community than I did when I was one step removed. Talking about the relationship among all forms of hate will be another major goal of the summit, said participant Heidi Berrick, who co-founded the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism in 2020 and is a former researcher with the Southern Poverty Law Center. At the end of the day, most of the people that hate Jews hate a whole bunch of other people, Berrick said. These things are really connected. The Tree of Life was emblematic of this. The guy was definitely an anti-Semite, but he was going to the synagogue because he was angered about immigration, that immigrants were essentially wiping out white power. These things do not exist in isolation. Next, we will jump over to JewishInsider.com for a little bit. The story, the feature story, the Jewish people are being used as a pawn right now, Kentucky Jewish leader says. Senator Rand Paul's staff told Jewish leaders it was up to them to convince Senate Democrats to pull Afghanistan aid by Mark Rod. Two Kentucky Jewish leaders who spoke with Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, his office this week said the senator's aides told them it was up to the Jewish community to lobby against Afghanistan aid if they wanted supplemental Iron Dome funding to move forward quickly. Paul is the sole senator blocking efforts to quickly pass the House bill providing $1 billion in additional aid to Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. He has insisted that the bill be amended to draw all aid, to withdraw all aid to Afghanistan, which he says could end up with the new Taliban government and reallocate some of it to Iron Dome. What Paul's office is suggesting is it's the Jewish community's responsibility to convince Congress to stop funding Afghanistan so that the money can go to Iron Dome. I'm flabbergasted by that suggestion. Daniel Grossberg, a Jewish political activist in the state who participated in a call with Paul Staffers Tuesday, told Jewish Insider, These are two unrelated issues. They are suggesting that the Jewish people are responsible for defunding potential terrorism in Afghanistan in order to secure their existence in the Jewish homeland. Mindy Haas, executive director of the Lexington Area Jewish Federation of the Bluegrass, who was also on the call, echoed Grossberg's assessment of the message conveyed by Paul's staff. We don't feel that it's fair that the Jewish people are being used as a pawn right now. We need to make sure that we are able to protect the people of Israel, Haas said. 
Nobody likes what's going on in Afghanistan, but we have to protect the people of Israel. And it's not just Jews in Israel, it's all people in Israel. Grossberg added that Paul's staff failed to provide a satisfactory explanation of why the senator was linking the two issues. Paul's state director, Rob Gibbons, kept reiterating that the senator's stance is clearly supportive of Iron Dome, but he is quite insistent on marrying it to defunding Afghanistan, he said. They couldn't give me any good explanation of what one has to do with the other. I didn't take it as anti-Semitic, he added. I just can't understand what the senator's justification is. Grossberg told Jewish Insider earlier this week that it's not easy being a Jew in politics in Kentucky. While another Jewish political activist, Rabbi Shlomo Litvin, said there has been extraordinary anti-Semitism within the Libertarian Party of Kentucky, with which Paul has ties, so it's not surprising to see that those associated with the Libertarian Party of Kentucky are hearing anti-Semitic voices. Paul's office has been reiterating to interested constituents the same points he's made in Senate speeches on that issue, a source familiar with the matter told Jewish Insider. The only alternatives to my plan to pay for Iron Dome funding are to either continue to print money, the inflationary effects of which will result in an effective tax increase on every American, or borrow even more money from communist China. Paul has said in a message sent to constituents that shared, was shared with Jewish Insider. I proposed a different solution. Funding Iron Dome by defunding the Taliban. We'll continue to make the case to my colleagues that funding Iron Dome by defunding the Taliban is the best way to strengthen the United States, Israel, and our partnership. Paul's actions are also garnering criticism from the House Democrats who led the charge on the standalone Iron Dome funding bill. Just as I announced the political stunts in the House by members of my own party, I denounced the Republican opposition to passing the funding for Iron Dome in the Senate, said Representative Elaine Luria, Democrat of Virginia, who urged senators not to tie Iron Dome funding to other issues in an interview with Jewish Insider last month. We must honor our commitment to Israel and drop these stalling tactics before it's too late. Representative Brad Schneider, Democrat of Illinois, told Jewish Insider earlier this week that Paul's actions are abhorrent and he should let it go. And now back to JTA. Texas Jewish death row inmate who argued judge was anti-Semitic wins new trial by Shira Hanau. A Jewish man who asked for a new trial on the grounds that the judge who sentenced him to death was anti-Semitic will be granted a new trial. Randy Halpern, 44, was originally set to be executed October 10, 2019, but won a stay from the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals after he alleged that the judge who presided over his 2003 murder trial was biased against Jews and referred to him using anti-Semitic slurs, including effing Jew and kike. The stay sent Halpern's case back to Dallas County, where Judge Layla Lawrence Mays heard Halpern's arguments in June and this week issued a decision granting Halpern a new trial. Judge Vickers Cunningham possessed anti-Semitic prejudice against Halpern, which violated Halpern's constitutional right to a trial in a fair tribunal, equal protection, and free exercise of religion, Mays wrote in her decision. Halpern was serving a 30-year sentence for harming a child when he and six other inmates attempted to escape from prison. A police officer was killed during the attempt, and each member of the group, which came to be known as the Texas Seven, was sentenced to death. 
Halpern claimed in his trial that he never fired his gun. The judge who presided over the original case, Vickers Vic Cunningham, has been accused of using several anti-Semitic and racist slurs and, according to the Dallas Morning News, set up a trust fund for his children on the condition that they marry white Christians of the opposite sex. Court documents quoted a childhood friend of Cunningham's who said the judge took special pride in sentencing the Texas Seven to death because they included Latinos and Jews. Several Jewish groups got involved in Halpern's case in recent years as he sought a new trial. The American Jewish Committee, Central, Central Conference of American Rabbis, Men of Reform Judaism, and Uni Union of Reform Judaism were among those filing a joint amicus brief in support of Halpern's 2019 appeal, and more than 100 Jewish lawyers in Texas signed on. The brief made the case that the appeal was not about Halpern's guilt, but about Cunningham's anti-Semitism. Those issues are irrelevant because questions of guilt and punishment follow a fair trial. They do not proceed it, it said. And if Judge Cunningham is the bigot described in the application, a fair trial has not yet happened. Next, an analysis piece from JTA. With Yair Lapid at his side, Blinken uses a word that Israel has been longing to hear on Iran by Ron Campeas, Washington. Yair Lapid got what he wanted out of his Washington visit, the word every instead of other. During Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's first meeting with President Biden in August, Bennett was happy with what he heard. The American president, despite his desire to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, said that if Iran does not engage in good-faith diplomacy with the nations involved in the deal, the U.S. would consider other options in getting Iran to curb its nuclear ambitions. It was a sign that Israel and U.S., Democrats, long far apart in their opinions on how best to contain Iran, were coming closer together. Lapid, on his official visit as foreign minister in Washington, pushed things along even further. He looked on Wednesday as Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, said every option was on the table if Iran does not engage in good faith effort to negotiate the U.S. reentry into the nuclear deal. It was one of those blink-and-you-miss-it moments in diplomacy, but it had significant weight. According to insiders involved in the issue, other options can be seen as referring to enhanced sanctions or other non-military forms of pressure. Every option means military action may be on the table as well. We will look at every option to deal with the challenge posed by Iran, Blinken said at a press conference called to announce initiatives that would adva advance the Abraham Accords, the normalization agreements between Israel and four Arab nations. We continue to believe that diplomacy is the most effective way to do that, but it takes two to engage in diplomacy, and we have not. We have not seen from Iran a willingness to do that at this point. Blinken made the statement on the State Department's eighth floor, flanked by Lapid and the United Arab Emirates Foreign Minister Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nahyan. The foreign ministers were together to announce a new Abraham Accords initiatives, uh, new Abraham Accord initiatives, but the symbolism of Blinken's stronger language in the company of two of the Middle East nations who feel Iran's threat most sharply was unmistakable. A senior Israeli of official told reporters after the meetings that the Israeli and U.S. delegations discussed Iran extensively behind closed doors. 
While there may not have been agreement, there was the discussion of options that have not been on the table previously, said the official, who spoke anonymously because of the sensitivity to the information. Along with Bennett, Lapid has spearheaded the effort to repair Israel's ties with the Democratic Party, which were corroded during the 12 years Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister. Netanyahu was antagonistic toward that half of the American polity toward which the clear majority of American Jews are oriented. Netanyahu has accused Bennett and Lapid of showing weakness by not more robustly opposing the Biden administration's efforts to re-enter the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which former President Donald Trump left in 2018 at Netanyahu's behest. Netanyahu and Lapid's strategy appeared to pay dividends during Lapid's 48 hours in the U.S. Capitol this week. The Biden administration, frustrated with the new hardline Iranian government elected this summer, is edging closer to Israel's posture, a development that came without tensions. Blinken's, use, uh, Blinken's language on Iran was tougher than it had been since President Joe Biden made good on his pledge to seek to re-enter the 2015 sanctions relief for nuclear rollback deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Biden sees it as the best option to keep Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Despite the fact that we've made abundantly clear over the last nine months that we are prepared to return to full compliance with the JCPOA if Iran does the same, we are not seeing, or maybe more accurately not seeing from Tehran now, suggests that they're not. Blinken said, I'm not going to put a specific date on it, but with every passing day and Iran's refusal, refusal to engage in good faith, the runway gets short. Lapid called other dividends from his visit. The Biden administration showed itself fully committed to cultivating the Abraham Accords, one of the few areas of agreement it has with the Trump administration, which brokered the Accords. Blinken at the press conference announced the launch of two working groups comprising Israeli, U.S., and Emirati officials, one tackling religious intolerance and the other fostering cooperation in water, on water and energy. Lapid also met with World Bank officials to discuss plans to seek investors for infrastructure projects in the Gaza Strip as a means of lifting the standard of living in the poverty-stricken enclave while limiting the influence of Hamas, the terrorist group controlling the Strip with which Israel periodically wars. The United Arab Emirates would likely also play a role in the investments. Lapid, who was set to take over as Israel's Prime Minister in 2023, met Tuesday with Vice President Kamala Harris and with Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. In a brief appearance for reporters, Pelosi emphasized bipartisan support for Israel, a pointed rejection of the calls by progressives within her party to cut funding to the country. On the U.S. side, Blinken said that uh, the Biden administration remains dedicated to reviving the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Biden, he said at the press conference, has been clear that a two-state solution is the best way to ensure Israel's future as a Jewish and democratic state, living in peace alongside a viable, sovereign, and democratic Palestinian state. Bennett has said that a Palestinian state will not arise on his watch, while Lapid has been less clear on the issue. Lincoln did not refrain from mentioning points of contention, including American plans to reopen a dedicated consulate for Palestinians in Jerusalem, replacing the one shuttered by the Trump administration. 
We'll be moving forward with the process of opening a consulate as part of deepening those ties with the Palestinians, Blinken said, although the Israeli government is on the record as opposing it. State Department statements on the meetings also pointedly said that China was a topic of discussion with Lapid. The Biden administration, like the Trump administration before it, objects to the extent of Israel's commercial ties with the most formidable rival to the United States in the international arena. Lapid is set to meet with Jewish organizational leaders in Washington on Thursday before he returns to Israel. He is expected to make the case to them that he wants to repair relations neglected by Netanyahu, who gravitated toward evangelical Christians as a more natural pro-Israel base. And next from JTA, in a TV interview, Ben & Jerry's founders say accusations of anti-Semitism following West Bank pullout are absurd by Shira Hanau. In an interview that aired on HBO, both of the founders of the Ben & Jerry's ice cream brand reiterated that they stand behind the company's decision to stop selling their products in the West Bank. But for Jerry Greenfield, being accused of anti-Semitism is painful. For Ben Cohen, it's absurd. I think Ben and & Jerry's and Unilever are being characterized as boycotting Israel, which is not the case at all. It's not boycotting Israel in any way, Greenfield said in an interview with Axios that aired on its HBO show Sunday night. The Jewish duo who founded the company in 1978 are no longer its owners, but they remain the most recognizable public faces of the company. They had previously defended the West Bank decision in a New York Times op-ed shortly after the move took place in July, but the Axios interview gave them a chance to expound on the human side of the aftermath. I understand people being upset. It's a very emotional issue for a lot of people, and I totally understand it, and it's a very painful issue for a lot of people, Greenfield said. They were also asked how it felt to be wrapped up in accusations of anti-Semitism. Totally fine, Cohen said, laughing. It's absurd. What? I'm anti-Jewish? I am a Jew. All my family is Jewish. My friends are Jewish. Ben & Jerry's had long been engaged in social issues when it decided to pull its product from the West Bank after months of pressure from pro-Palestinian activists in the wake of Israel's latest armed conflict with Gaza. The decision prompted calls to boycott Ben & Jerry's and its parent company Unilever, along with accusations of anti-Semitism from some pro-Israel activists. The state of Arizona divested nearly $200 million from Unilever in September, and several other states have since renewed their investments in, uh, reviewed their investments in the conglomerate. Unilever has also said in public statements that it does not believe Ben & Jerry's is boycotting the state of Israel and that it plans to keep selling within the borders Israel established after the Six-Day War in 1967. However, Israeli law outlaws business that boycotts the West Bank, so it remains to be seen whether the company will be allowed to follow through with its plan. When asked why Ben & Jerry's continues to sell its ice cream in states with policies that are not in line with Cohen and Greenfield's values, such as Texas, where access to abortion is now limited, and Georgia, where voting rights have been curtailed, Cohen did not have an answer. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. I don't know what that would accomplish. We're working on those issues of voting rights, and... I don't know. I think you ask a really good question, and I think I'd have to sit down and I'd have to think about it for a bit, Cohen said. Greenfield suggested that the answer had to do with international law. One thing that's different is that what Israel is doing is considered illegal by international law, 
So I think that's a consideration, Greenfield said. Next from JTA, Sally Rooney, Israel Publishers, Israeli Publishers, can't put out my new book for now, but Hebrew translation would be an honor, by Ben Sales. The best-selling author Sally Rooney said she decided not to publish her latest novel with an Israeli publishing house because she supports a boycott of Israel, but added that a non-Israeli press could still publish the book in Hebrew. Rooney's statement made Tuesday confirms a report by the Israeli newspaper Haaretz last month that Rooney declined to sell Hebrew publishing rights for her new book, Beautiful World, Where Are You?, to Modan Publishing House, an Israeli press that published her first two novels in Hebrew. The Jewish Telegraphic Agency and others this week characterized Rooney's decision not to work with Modan as a decision not to allow her, to allow her critically acclaimed book to be translated into Hebrew at all. Rooney said, that is not true. It would be an honor for me to have my latest novel translated into Hebrew and available to Hebrew language readers, the statement said, but for the moment I've chosen not to sell these translation rights to an Israeli-based publishing house. Whether that's possible is unclear. The Hebrew language publishing industry is centered in Israel, the only country where Hebrew is an official language. Rooney, 30, the Irish author of the acclaimed 2018 novel Normal People, has been called one of the world's premier millennial authors. Her books have topped bestseller charts, gotten television deals, and been praised for their depiction of urbane millennial life and romance. She had expressed her support for the movement to boycott, divest from, and sanction Israel, known as BDS, in July, when she was one of thousands of artists to sign a letter urging an end to the international aid to Israel, as well as trade, economic, and cultural relations. That came shortly after Israel's May conflict with Hamas in Gaza prompted renewed international criticism of Israel, including a wave of boycott calls. Citing recent reports by Human Rights Watch and the Israeli Human Rights Watch B'Tselem, Rooney said in her statement that Israel's system of racial domination and segregation against Palestinians meets the definition of apartheid under international law. Human Rights Watch said that Israeli authorities systematically discriminate against Palestinians in a way that amounts to systematic oppression required for apartheid. Salem said that Israel maintains an apartheid regime that uses laws, practices, and organized violence to cement the supremacy of one group over another. Anticipating questions about whether she is permitting translations in China or other countries with records of human rights abuses, Rooney acknowledged that many countries are guilty of grievous human rights abuses, but compared to Israel, uh, but compared Israel to apartheid-era South Africa, and said that she's chosen to boycott in response to a call from Palestinian civil society. I understand that not everyone will agree with my decision, but I simply do not feel it would be right for me under the present circumstances to accept a new contract with an Israeli company that does not publicly distance itself from apartheid and support the UN-stipulated rights of the Palestinian people, she said. Irish left-wing activists have long connected their historical struggle against the British to support for Palestinian independence. Both of Rooney's first two books contained references to Israel. In Normal People, the main characters attend a protest of Israel's actions in the 2014 Gaza War, and her first book, Conversations with Friends, contains a sardonic reference to Israel being seen as nicer than Palestine. 
Israeli officials and advocates for Israel have decried the boycott movement as unjust, with some going so far as accusing boycott supporters of anti-Semitism. Israel's Diaspora Affairs Minister Nachman Shai made that connection around Rooney's decision. Why read her at all, Shai tweeted Tuesday, shortly before Rooney released her statement. The cultural boycott of Israel is anti-Semitism in new wrapping, and it's a badge of shame for her and others who act like her. Rooney is the latest in a string of prominent artists who support a boycott of Israel, and her decision not to publish with an Israeli press is the most significant of its kind since the author Alice Walker announced in 2012 that she would not publish The Color Purple with an Israeli house. Several years later, Walker drew fierce criticism after she endorsed a book that placed Jews at the center of a global conspiracy to control the world. The JTA has asked Rooney's agent if she has made any inquiries into publishing the novel in Hebrew outside of Israel. In her statement, she she suggested that she would be open to doing so. The Hebrew language translation rights to my new novel are still available, and if I can find a way to sell these rights that is compliant with the BDS movement's institutional boycott uh, guidelines, I will be very pleased and proud to do so, Rooney said. Next from JTA, how Meyer Kahane's extremist ideas entered the Jewish mainstream by Emily Barak. Meyer Kahane is the Jew whom Jews would like to forget. Yet, as Shaul Magid writes in Meyer Kahane, the public life and political thought of an American Jewish radical, Princeton University Press, his new cultural biography of the controversial Jewish figure, Kahane, keeps coming back to haunt us. Born in Brooklyn in 1932, Kahane was elected to the Israeli Knesset or Parliament in 1984 on an extremist platform calling for Arabs to be expelled from Israel, among other ideas. In 1986, under a new anti-racism law, he was barred from running for re-election. In 1990, he would be assassinated by an Egyptian-American in New York City. In today's Knesset, the Kahanist party, Otzma Yehudit, literally Jewish power, has one seat. But in 1968, before his time in Israel, he founded the Militant Jewish Defense League. Focused on Jewish pride, Kahane called for every Jew at 22 and popularized the slogan, Never Again. He spoke out against intermarriage, believed the second Holocaust was inevitable, and that anti-Semitism was a pervasive threat on the left and the right, accusing less confrontational Jews of lacking Jewish pride. Although his militant and violent tactics alienated the Jewish mainstream, he was a key figure in publicizing the fight to free Soviet Jewry. Ultimately, he pivoted to what Magid describes as militant post-Zionist apocalyptism. Magid's book tells the story of Kahane's radicalism from his critique of liberalism through his ever-changing Zionism. He became demonized because of his tactics and because of his violence and his racism, but the worldview has really dug some pretty deep roots, Magid said. In Meyer Kahane, he sets out to unpack how that worldview lingers today, and he spoke with JTA about the project. This conversation has been lightly condensed and edited for clarity. JTA. To begin with, you write about how Meyer Kahane's ideas and much of what he promoted in America have entered our mainstream discourse. 
like that anti-Semitism is pervasive everywhere or his, as you write, assertive expression of Jewish identity. As someone who studies Kahane, what is it like to see his ideas enter the mainstream? Shal Magid. You have to make a sharp distinction between his worldview and his tactics. His militancy was very much a product of his time. He was living at a time of the Black Panthers, the Young Lords, the SDS Students for a Democratic Society, the Weather Underground. The idea of radical militancy and violence was very much a part of what was happening in America at the time. That, of course, has fallen away in most cases. If you take that militancy away, it's not that the Kahane disappears, but what you actually have is a much more well-defined worldview that has really made its way into the subconscious of American Jewry. Perennial anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism on the left is worse than anti-Semitism on the right. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. What we call now Jewish continuity, Kahane just called Jewish survival. The idea of Jewish pride. How do you actually create an environment where Jews can be proud to be Jews in an unashamed way? Questions of intermarriage. Kahane wrote a book about intermarriage in 1974 when nobody was talking about intermarriage. He saw the future a bit on some of these questions. In your book, you emphasize that Kahane was a quintessentially American figure. Much of the previous scholarship on him focused on his time in Israel and looked back on his time in America through that lens, but you argue we need to reverse that. Understanding him in America is key to understanding him in Israel. He fails in Israel because he's bringing American categories and an American way of seeing society to an Israeli society which is very different. It's more complex in all kinds of ways. First of all, in Israel the Jews are the majority, not the minority, and that itself changes things. Second, he couldn't reconceptualize the complexity of race in Israel from the much more straightforward of understanding black and white in America. As a result of that, he succeeds initially. He is elected to the Knesset, but ultimately the country rejects him. Yet in both places, Kahane used racist language to further his base and make a name for himself. Kahane uses race in very interesting ways. I don't necessarily think that they were all worked out in his head. He saw race as a pivotal issue in America in the 1960s. He was very, very impressed by the black nationalism of Black Panthers, and he saw the way in which they were able to cultivate a reaction to the racism that they were confronted with in ways that helped produce their own sense of identity. And he tried to do the same thing, I think, with Jews. He didn't call Jews a race because Jews didn't call themselves a race at that point anymore, but he certainly saw race as an important issue. In Israel, it's actually pretty different because race is a much more complicated story there. Ultimately, the conflict between the Jews and the Arabs is not really a racial conflict the way the conflict between whites and blacks was in America. A lot of people say, oh, race is not really an issue in Israel. It's really about dual nationalisms or whatever. I think that's also wrong. I think religion is very much at play, and obviously national identities are very much at play, and I think race is at play too. In terms of Kahane's language of Jewish power and Jewish pride, why is that not as successful in Israel? Because you have Israeliness. Jews can be proud of being Israeli. They can be proud of being Jews. 
so they can be proud of being religious Jews and it's the majority culture. So you don't need to cultivate that identity of pride in the same way that you do when Jews are a minority. Israel is facing anti-Semitism in a very different way than American Jews are. Israel is facing anti-Semitism as a collective, perhaps, but not necessarily as individuals. Whereas in America, Jews are facing anti-Semitism as individuals. It's different to talk about Jewish power in America than talking about Jewish power in Israel. Where actually Jews are the power. They have the power. They have the military. They have the police. I mean, the structure of the society is about Jewish power. In the chapter on Zionism, you write about how he's saying Israel can't be both a Jewish state and a democracy, which was, correct me if I'm wrong, controversial to stay back then, but we hear that all the time now. It was controversial back then, but only for people in the center and on the right. People on the Israeli left were saying Israel can't be a democracy and a Jewish state from early on. You had groups like Matzpen that were basically anti-Zionist precisely because of that. They wanted a democratic state, not a Jewish state. Kahane was saying it as a Zionist. He calls Israel schizophrenic in his 1986 book, Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews. For Kahane, it just didn't work. It just doesn't work, so you have to choose. You want to have, you want to have a Jewish state or you want to have a democratic state. This also has to do with Kahane's Americanism. For him, there was only one kind of democracy, the American style of liberal democracy. That was it. If you live in a democracy, then everybody that lives in that democracy has to be treated equally. So later, when the Jewish and democratic equations started to become more complicated, people came up with other theories like ethnic democracies. Kahane's line is like, no, 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 there's no Jewish democracy or Arab democracy. There's just democracy or no democracy. Do you see this idea taking hold today more prominently? Oh, sure. We're basically living on the verge of a post-two-state Israel where the Palestinians are not going to be given a state, where they're not going to be citizens, and they're going to be ruled over by Israel. If this is being done in order to ensure a Jewish state, what Kahane would say is okay. So that's not a democracy anymore. And a lot of people are saying that. If the Jews today are being confronted with a Jewish state or a democratic state, more and more leaning towards a Jewish state, which is what Kahane would have wanted. Well, he would have wanted it, but not in that way. Kahane basically gives up Zionism at some point. He realizes that it's just a failed liberal project of Hebrew-speaking Goyim, or Jewish Hellenism, or all of those things he called it. In other words, for him, Zionism failed. It failed to produce a true Jewish state. There has been a lot of consternation about Itmar Ben-Gvir, a disciple of Kahane, entering the Knesset. What do you think his election says about Israeli society, and how does his being in Knesset compare to Kahane himself in Knesset in the 1980s? Ben-Gvir and current Knesset member Betzalel Smotrich, in a different way, and a number of other Israeli parliamentarians somehow identify with Kahane. I think they're really better understood as neo-Kahanists meaning they come from the religious national educational system, the system of Rav Abraham Isaac Cook, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi of what was then Palestine, and then there's a certain kind of theological romanticism that underlies their thinking. 
They're not like Israeli far-right politician Baruch Martzel, a real Kahanist. For him, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. He's a leftover version of Kahan, which is, we're really talking about power and conquest. We don't have to make excuses. We don't have to say, oh, we're doing this because of security reasons. We're doing this because God gave the land of Israel to the Jews. And that's what we're living out. In a way, the neo-Kahanists are always trying to find a construct of Kahanist vision. It contains certain kind of normalization apologetics that Kahan just didn't have. Because ultimately, Ben Gavir believes in the secular state. Kahane didn't believe in the secular state. What do you think of Kahane's legacy in the American Jewish community today in terms of what it means to be a Jew in America, a proud Jew in America? One of the things that's happening in American Jewry today is all of this discussion about defining anti-Semitism. American Jews are feeling newly unsure whether America can ultimately protect them. That brings us back to what Kahane was feeling in the 1960s and 70s. America has been better to the Jews than any other country in Jewish history, but anti-Semitism will always rise to the surface and that Jews could never feel comfortable there. He's giving up on American Jewry, saying that as long as America remains a liberal society, it will ultimately not protect the Jews. Not that the Jews are going to feel physically endangered, but they're also going to feel spiritually endangered because they will be asked to give up their own sense of Jewish identity. Kahane was speaking before the rise of multiculturalism, and multiculturalism may have changed that. He was living in an America where assimilation into Americanness meant a diminishing of one's particular identity. Multiculturalism creates a different cultural model where difference is celebrated rather than only tolerated. What Kahane felt was the danger of the American embrace of the Jew in the 1960s and 70s. In the 1990s and 2000s, through multiculturalism, I don't think that's necessarily as true anymore. We can talk about the rise of orthodoxy in the 1980s and 1990s. Why does orthodoxy come back into fashion? In large part, it's really riding the wave of multiculturalism. It has nothing to do with orthodoxy per se. You speak about how he predicted a lot of the issues that the American Jewish community struggles with today, but he kept making the same mistake over and over again. Where do you view him failing in his tactics? Violence. That's number one. Second of all, he always went too far. He always overextended. And third, he had this maniacal desire for power, his own personal power, that ultimately undermined it. What's an example of Kahane undermining himself? I don't think Kahane knew about the Sal Hirak bombing. The Jewish Defense League, opposed to Soviet artists performing in the United States, bombed theater and presario Sal Hirak's offices in January 1972, killing a young Jewish woman, Iris Konis. I don't think he knew that was going to happen. I think that he had lost control of the JDL by then. I think he was horrified by it, but I think that he set something in motion, and at some point you can't necessarily control what's going to happen, and you still have to take the responsibility for it. After Sal Hirak, it all basically just started to collapse. The irony is that it wasn't even his fault. He wasn't even there, and he probably didn't even know it was going to happen. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.